0: Colossians 2, starting at verse 6, says, As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in Him, rooted and built up in Him, established in the faith, as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, After the rudiments of the world, the elements of the world, and not after Christ. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power, in whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, Wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly triumphing over them in it. Amen. So your handout looks a little different today, and I will tell you that uh, the handout you have is the same thing I have. It's normally not that way. I normally just give you uh, the quotes. But what I did in looking at this passage, because I wanted us to see Paul's argument, uh, I set it out basically in what I see to be the structure of his argument Um, something you do in seminary although you do it in the original languages is you diagram sentences Um, if you have a faithful English translation um, it's not altogether necessary to see it in the original language to be able to diagram it and I think you'll see that this morning uh, as we look at this passage and lay out Paul's argument Um, but in laying this out for you, I want to encourage you in your own studies of Scripture to try and do this yourself, um, to, to look at the passage that you're reading for the day or something like that, and see, I mean, maybe you could do it in writing, maybe you just do it in your head, but see how the argument is laid out, uh, because it will um, it help you have a better understanding of Scripture, and it will also make you a better reader, just in general, to be able to connect one point uh, to the next and uh if, if you've come from a uh, a Baptist background maybe you're familiar with verses 11 and 12 um, where it connects circumcision and baptism and shows that baptism has replaced circumcision and that is certainly true uh, though I don't believe uh, Paul would have known what a Baptist was so that would not have been part of his argument in here but there is a connection uh, in verses eleven and twelve, uh, from baptism or from circumcision to baptism, you can use this passage to prove that. But I would, I would say that's not part of Paul's overall point. So let's get into Paul's.
1: Sure. All right. Yeah. All
0: mm-hmm. right. Yeah. All right. So uh, the first thing right there on your outline, um, I guess I should have done big A's, little A's and Roman numerals. But you can see by the way they line up what the main point is, what the sub point is, and what the sub point of the subpoint and the sub point of the subpoint of the subpoint is in a couple of places. Alright? Because he does go, you could see there under the first heading that I take it uh, basically four levels deep, right? A main point, a second point, a third point, and then a fourth point connected to that. Alright, so the first point. Paul, again, addressing those who are uh, being tempted by false teaching, um, it seems to me that the first argument that he's make, which uh, kind of overarches the whole argument, is to continue walking in Christ and abounding in thanksgiving. All right? So, if you look at uh, verse 6, at the second half, it says, Walk in Him, walk in Christ, And then at the end of verse 7 which I think is basically where uh, the he brings it together more or less at the end of verse 7 he uh, says it again uh, not walking in him but as you have been taught right so as you've therefore received Christ verse 6 and then in verse 7 as you have been taught it's like he's saying the same thing over again right so to me he's drawing his argument there his opening point to a close Uh, or at least framing this first point. And the first point is to walk in Christ in thanksgiving. And then as you move in a layer to our second A there, you see as you have received him, and I put those two stars there so you could look down at E and see what I just pointed out, that 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 idea is repeated in this section, that within those uh, two... Um, or within that section, Paul is framing his argument, meaning go back to Christ. Uh, You've been taught him as you have received him. There's nothing more that you need. You're going to grow in him. You don't need these false teachings. And as you have received him, right? So we're on that second A there under point A. Um, He connects it, right? As you have received Christ, walk in Christ, abounding in thanksgiving, You are, as you walk in Christ and abound in thanksgiving, you are rooted in Him. I know we got into this a little bit last time, uh, but you are also built up in Him, and you are established in Him, right? So uh, that's reasons to continue walking in Christ and abounding with thanksgiving. You've already received Him. You're being rooted up in Him. You're being built up in Him. You're being established in Him. So continue walking in Christ. Um. And then I move in another layer um, because I don't think he's on a new point when he gets to this, but I think he's showing uh, the dangers, uh, drawing out not just what they have in Christ, but showing uh, what they are facing, right? And you are to beware of spoiling away from from Christ or beware of being led away from him because you're supposed to be walking in him. Right? He's still talking about walking in Christ. You can't walk in Christ if you are spoiled away from him or moved away from Christ in the way that they were tempted uh, through these false teachers is through uh, philosophy, through vain deceit, and through the traditions of men after rudiments of the world. And uh, that phrase, rudiments, <coughs> excuse me, or elements of the world, is uh, mentioned here in Colossians and also in Galatians uh, where Paul is uh, drawing out a particular uh, Jewish element of the false teachings. Um, and remember I mentioned, I think it was last week, how Matthew Henry, and I think rightly, sees the false teaching that the Colossians were facing not just as a uh, like Judaizing issue, but also as something that was kind of mixed with a Gentile issue. So The Gentiles, at least at this time, would have been really pushing philosophy, especially the Greeks, right? Greek philosophy would have been one of the things that they had been uh, pushing. And when that philosophy leads you away from Christ, you're, one, uh, following philosophy too much, but all true philosophy leads you to Christ is the point. Um, And also the issue of vain deceit, uh, hypocrisy and whatnot, right? So those are attached, those three, ABC there, those go into how they would have been spoiled away from Christ, and then how they would have been led away from walking in Him. All right, does that make sense? See the argument? How I'm trying to uh, connect it all together, just under this first heading: walking in Christ and abounding in thanksgiving as you've received Him, as you have been taught, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So let's move on to. Uh, point B, right? So, we're on the B on the outer layer. He's going to begin to give one, two, three, four, five reasons why they should continue walking in Christ. Right? And the the way that I connect these together is because he uses the word and or for. Right? So, when, when that word kind of comes up in your English Bibles, it's normally, especially the word and, is marked out by an and in Greek, right? And can mean um, moving on to the next thing, right? That this is also involved. Or it could be like showing the unity of something uh, like you have in verse seven, rooted and built up in him. That's really the same thing. Uh, but notice at verse nine, Uh, The uh, the translation I'm looking at begins with the word for, right? So he's commended walking in Christ, verses 6 and 7, being aware of the dangers of philosophy, vain deceit, traditions of men, elements of the world. Those things are not after Christ, right? When they're used incorrectly, of course. And then verse 9, for or because, right? So continue walking in Christ, point A, because, point B, in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, or I want to phrase it like this because I think this is Paul's argument to show the completeness of what they are in Christ that he brings out in verse 10. Or in him there is complete godness, just as in you through him is complete humanness, right? So he's saying the fullness of God Everything that it means to be God is found in the man, Jesus Christ. It dwells in him bodily. Just as, verse 10, you are complete in him because he's the head of all principality and power. So you can't walk away from Christ and find greater fullness. You can't find greater fullness for yourself. You can't find a greater, fuller manifestation of God. Than in the person of Christ. And that was, again, part of what they were seeking through this false teaching that they were adding to uh, what this uh, mediation that Christ would have offered and seeing him as insufficient. The next one, C, uh, he begins with um, in him, <clears throat> in him, um, at verse 11, as the way mine begins, in him. But I'm going to add a word and there. And, so here's another argument. So not only is the fullness of the Godhead in him and you are complete in him who is complete Godness himself, but also, here's another reason you shouldn't walk away from Christ. Another reason you should walk in Christ, abounding in thanksgiving, because in him you are circumcised with the true circumcision. Right, He's appealing to those who would have been under the sway of false Judaistic teaching, right? Similar to Galatians, right? You need to be circumcised in order to be in Christ kind of thing, right? But there were also probably, because of the dispersion of uh, the Jews and whatnot, those who were uh, and undoubtedly Jews and had been circumcised uh, at birth, and they were being told to trust in that. But whatever the, the parallel Paul is drawing, he is saying that The true circumcision is found in Christ, and the true circumcision is, moving in our first A there under C, the true circumcision is without hands. Now, when I say true circumcision, being without hands, I don't mean that physical circumcision is false circumcision, right? Because the implication of that would be God gave them something false when he gave it to them. But he's showing that the way that they were being taught about circumcision made it false. It was a false doctrine. So this circumcision with the circumcision made without hands is something that the original circumcision ultimately pointed to. True circumcision, the greater circumcision or the ultimate circumcision is without hands. And we know that that comes from... The Old Testament, where God called those who had been circumcised in the flesh, and he even called the women and children by implication who were unable to be circumcised, he called them to circumcise their hearts. Walking in repentance and all those things. Moving in another layer, what is this circumcision? It is putting off of the body of the sins of the flesh. That is something that outward circumcision... Cannot do, right? It points to something other than that. The outward circumcision points to the body of the sins of the flesh, just as the flesh is removed in circumcision. But he's showing that in Christ, the ultimate circumcision is shown, that it's had through him. And when you're circumcised with this circumcision made without hands, you have the flesh, or excuse me, the body of the sins of the flesh put off, by the circumcision of Christ. And in the background here, I don't have this in your outline, but in the background here, you have the way that circumcision ultimately pointed to the cross because circumcision was about the shedding of blood, showing the intimate nature of blood to covenants in general. Um, But he's showing that the fullness of all those things has come in Christ, just as in verse 16, which Lord willing, we'll get to next time, he brings up the fact that because of all this you have in Christ, no one's to judge you, meet or drink, right? Which would have been the case in the old ways or in respect of a holy day or the new moon or of the Sabbath days. All right? So spiritual under uh, that B, under C, A, uh, spiritual is not opposed to natural, but spiritual, this true circumcision, is opposed to to mere outward or mere natural circumcision that lacks the work of the Spirit that puts off the body of sins of the flesh. So when you turn away from Christ, you're turning back to a circumcision that cannot accomplish what it is meant to accomplish. Yeah.
2: So this is very similar to uh, Galatians' Paul's use of the
0: law. The outward merely...
2: Like it's the first time you laying out this argument this way, it's the first time I kind of click those two links together.
0: But... Yeah, yeah. When you're looking at the commentaries, most of the parallels they draw are from Galatians with Colossians, and we don't often, I don't either, often put those together in my mind when I read them. Yeah. Uh, but the arguments are very similar because, yeah. uh, like,
2: some will say, just like we have people today who say that our sacraments are just merely outward, right? But like, sort of the kind of broadly evangelical view of the sacraments mm-hmm. is they're. Outward signs only, inward, right? But that's that's part of it. Mm-hmm. But they do actually have a, an efficacy. They had an efficacy mm-hmm. spiritually. Yeah, the same
0: way the law does. Yeah, the law has a spiritual efficacy even for the believers. It's not just merely yep. an outward. Well, they're the means of grace. Yeah. Right, the law is part of the word. The word's the means of grace. Mm-hmm. Sacraments are means of grace, and circumcision was a sacrament. <laughs>
1: Trip, trip me, time was out of the Galatians and Colossians and all of that. To try to remember which, which
0: I wish I could remember, Mr. Ed. Uh, I just had that question. Yeah, uh, let Andrew tell you.
2: Andrew. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, so. Galatians,
0: if I remember correctly, is at the end, right? The right. end of his
2: life. Yeah, they think Galatians is one of the oldest letters. Uh, but uh, the latest in his well, latest, right, latest, okay, yeah, yeah. in Pauline canon because it shows some of the most complete thought on some of the some of these things.
0: But he also talks about something about nearing his end, near the end of Galatians' How, And most people take something he says about his handwriting to be that he had gone blind. Yeah, that I wrote to you in such large letters.
2: Yeah. yeah. But the Colossians, Philippians, even Galatians, because uh, Galatia, there's a northern-southern argument for who he was writing to. But it's the same kind of nexus of churches and problems, mm-hmm. where you have, because of the diaspora, You have a lot of Jewish communities out in these Gentile regions of the Roman Empire, and as Christianity is spreading, there's this admixture happening Mm -hmm. of vain philosophy and bodily sort of, yeah. yeah, So he's addressing the same group types of
0: people. Uh Yeah. And I think also the, not that he doesn't focus on Christ in Galatians, but uh, his argument is, is different in Galatians, though he's aiming at a similar thing. And you can look at Philippians and see the argument is very basic there and much more, just very explicitly on Christ and the basics of what it is. Right? That you know, Philippians 2 is just about the incarnation and learning humility from that. When you're moving on to something like Galatians later in life, he's got and he's addressing a body that has had time to develop some. Around the teaching of Christ, where false teaching has crept in, and, and Philippians also, there's really no overt rebukes like you have in um, Colossians and Galatians. It's like, and he calls them fools. And yeah. Bewitched you. Right. Yeah. But All right. That's
2: a common thing, though, because if we think about like that application of law, probably broad evangelicalism underplays the relationship between the natural and the spiritual, but mm-hmm. even on like the Roman Catholic side, right, where there's a a view of sacramental efficacy that we wouldn't hold to. You know, this so these problems are still alive and well
0: today, mm-hmm. I mean we're still living in that tension
2: in a lot of ways between those two views. Yeah. When we talk to people, a lot of people know, oh well, why are you worried about baptism? Or why are you worried? If, why not be baptized three times?
0: All right. They can't. Because you can't be circumcised three times. Right. Because there is a relationship between the natural and the spiritual. So the next point um, is letter D on the outer edge there. This is another reason why you should, uh, why the Colossians should, and of course we should continue walking in Christ, abounding in thanksgiving, because not only is the fullness of circumcision found in him, but the fullness of baptism as well. In him, you are baptized, uh, you are buried with him in baptism. So, notice what he's saying in Christ, your baptism means that you are united to his death. What passage does this call to mind? I'll give you a hint. It's also written by Paul, Romans Romans 6. Yes. The same exact type of language right? that, just as Christ has been buried, um, your baptism unites you to His burial, and just as Christ was raised, your baptism is connected to that as well, right? Which shows you kind of the the weirdness about debating modes of baptism because Christ was not buried in the ground; Christ was taken horizontally into a tomb, right? It's not about the the mode when you're talking about it like this. Though, again, there's nothing efficacious about the mode itself, but you miss uh, the teaching about baptism when you focus so much on the mode. But, again, this is another reason they were to remain in Christ, to walk in him abounding in thanksgiving, was because in him, and only in him, your baptism means that you've been united with him in uh, his death. But notice what also, I didn't uh, put your, your marks there for where they are in the verse, but if you look at verse 12 in your Bible, buried with him in baptism, wherein you also are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God. So God attaches faith as a promise to baptism, right? So you're not only buried, you're risen. That's what baptism points to. That's what baptism has as a promise and all that. And it's through the operation of God. But then he says this, Who hath raised him from the dead? So it seems to me that Paul is saying, uh, I don't don't take anyone here in Colossae to be doubting the resurrection of Christ. But just as God raised Christ from the dead, God raises you from the dead. Baptism points to this. Resurrection from the dead that we experience spiritually in this life and ultimately at the last day right? if you again if you put an overemphasis on the mode of baptism you're gonna miss this stuff the same one who raised Christ shows that in baptism he will raise you as well then another reason let's move down to letter E here uh, still in the outer layer Another reason is found at the end of verse 13. Um, you hath he quickened together with him. Uh, quickened, you know, the old word from uh, the Apostles' Creed, but made alive. You've been made alive by him. Right? So let's look at the words of verse 13. You, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him. You've already been made alive by Christ. So you should walk in him. Why would you try to find life in anyone else or anything else or any other teaching that would draw you away from this? You were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Now, what I take him to mean there, uh, because of the potentiality of him addressing those who were people who had been circumcised, when he says flesh there, he's speaking spiritually. Just as he's talking about the true circumcision is not circumcision outward, but circumcision inward by the Spirit through the working of God. So here, you who are uncircumcised in the flesh, I don't think Paul referring to uh, flesh as a sinful reality in the human life is foreign to you, right? He's not simply pointing to the flesh on your body. He's saying the flesh of the heart, as it were. You have been, though you were dead in your sins... And the uncircumcision of your flesh, that your sinful flesh remained, he has quickened together with him by forgiving all your trespasses. So why would you walk away from Christ? Continue walking in him. You've been quickened by him, though you were dead in your sins, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, as I said, that's contrasted with the circumcision without hands, not the circumcision with hands. Resurrection and the cross of Christ, uh, bring in verse 14 here as well. The resurrection and the cross of Christ provide what is being described in the blotting out, right? So he goes further in verse 14, and I take this to still be part of verse uh, 13's point. Through the uh, in the quickening, the being made alive together with Christ, you've got all that's said in verse 13, but you've also got what Uh, happened, notice at the end of verse 14, it says, nailing it to his cross, right? So through the cross of Christ, he just talked about the death of, or the burial of Christ and the resurrection of Christ in verse 12. And here in verse 13 and 14, he begins to kind of move backwards a little and talk about the cross uh, before his burial, before his resurrection. At the cross, all the handwritings of ordinances that were against us, uh, most people take that to mean something like the condemnation of the law, Right? that uh, based on the way the law was an ordinance that has been written down and ordained by God, there was, as it were, a handwriting or a list of things against us right? because of our sins. But that was contrary to us, meaning that condemnation itself does not lead to life. That condemnation, if you remain in it, is contrary to Christ, but it's meant to lead you to Christ. And our sins were contrary to us. And they took us out of the way, just as Christ took them out of the way by nailing it to his cross. And all this is grounded in being made alive by him through his cross, his death, burial, and resurrection. And then the last thing, letter F. And, all right, so here's another reason. He spoiled... Principalities and powers. So you see the use of the same word there in verse 8: beware lest any man spoil you. Here, he plays on it. He has spoiled, Christ himself has spoiled principalities and powers. He has made a show of them openly. That is to say that Christ has mocked them, Christ has defeated them, that his triumph over these invisible powers that you are appealing to are indeed defeated in Christ. He has triumphed over them in it. In the cross, yes, but in his spoiling of them and in his making a show of them openly, Christ has defeated principalities and powers. And if all that's true of Christ, you go back to the first point. Ought you not to walk in him, abounding in thanksgiving. So that's that's the outline of the passage um, before we move into the quotes, like we always do, I want to give you an opportunity, if you have anything, questions based on the outline or or whatever that I gave you, or comments.
2: The already not yet aspects of this are mm-hmm. pretty profound. I think that last point is like what he says in Ephesians. Like, what if Christ mocking, like every time we gather, mm-hmm. there's the already the cross, the resurrection. You know, there's a, there's a sense in which Christ, Spoiling the principalities is completed, mm-hmm. but we participate in that every time we gather to worship. Yep. we are mocking those principalities that are anti-Christ. The, you know, the, we're mocking Satan every time we gather to yeah. worship Christ.
0: And we're not just mocking them in general; we're mocking them as defeated. Yeah, right. this you know, I mean, I. Amen to what you're saying, but don't don't just think about it as you know. Well, you know, Jesus is greater than them, so he can mock them. Well, he's already defeated them, right? And our, as you say, gathering together in worship is a declaration of that.
3: Um, I have just a comment, and maybe simplistically. Um, it seems that for for a mature Christian.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, if I take verses 6 through 14 or 15 um, really in, in, from my standpoint verse 8 seems like the takeaway that we want to cons- we more want to remember mm. because all this other stuff is <laughs> it's not important it's 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 pretty basic that we should know this stuff, mm-hmm. uh, and but verse eight really gets at the, you know, just be beware lest anybody yeah. cheat you uh, uh, with you know with their philosophies and empty deceit, traditions of men and all this junk in the world. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it seems that's the that seems more the takeaway that we should be aware of, because everything else is kind of the reasoning behind that.
0: Yeah, well, they're they're more connected together than that. It's, yeah. it's one argument, not two. Right. right? So, the reason you should remain in him, yes, all this is true, but you need to be aware of those things. Because if you walk away from him, this is what you're walking away from. Right? So, um, as God often does in the scriptures he doesn't just give a warning right he shores up the reasons you should heed this warning right so I, I don't think you're wrong right? that's just one aspect of the argument that Paul is making like, all of this is found in Christ all of this is true you're not going to find it anywhere else and because of that you should beware right, of being led away from him the that's kind of the negative side of the argument. I don't mean negative in a bad way, but right. Don't do this, right? Don't walk this way. Walk this way because this is true. If you walk this way, mm-hmm. but if you walk that way, that's what you'll get. That kind of thing. So just look at this.
1: You know, I, I just can't help but see how the Bible is so overarching. I mean, you, you, saw, you, you pointed out this emphasis on all principalities and powers. And it's also the go so, back to chapter one shows up again there mm-hmm. in verse uh, 16, I guess. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and what, what, what I do, when you try to say, what's the, what, what are the ideas that unite those three things? I think it use here, I don't know. But in any event, the first one is all things are created in him. Mm-hmm. You
0: know,
1: And the second one is, you know, uh, uh, we, you know we we, are basically complete in him, and the third one, you know, is that, you know, in him, he is basically we're conquering him, mm-hmm. we're, we're victorious in him. Right? So anyway, it's just interesting how how the observation I'm trying to come to my mind is how we can we can think that the gospel is divorced from the reality of the world, mm-hmm. the state, the nation, and all these other things. We sort of tend to tend to be following this American. Simplification of the gospel is just something that's internal in, in ourselves and our body, and that's not what Paul's saying here. Right. We're part of God's overarching work in humanity, in the creation, and all things. I mean, it just brings you. It just makes you step back and just stand in all what mm-hmm. God is doing. No, okay,
0: you're right. Yep. Yep. And the first quote that I want to turn to there kind of connects to uh, something I, th- I think that Mr. Ed was hinting at. If you wanted to preach through. Uh, some people do this, uh, where they'll preach through a whole book of the Bible in, in one sermon. And I think, along with uh, one commentator I quote there, but there are others uh, who would argue this, I'd imagine, uh, that this passage, uh, chapter 2, verses 6 to 15, is the heart of Colossians. That out of this root, as it were, flows everything else that's mentioned. Right? Um, the warning about beware, but also the fullness of what you have in Christ. Um, so, let's look at these uh, these quotes. We'll see how many we get through. And I tried to order them. This first one is basically like an overview of the passage, and then the next one, uh, it begins uh, at the beginning, basically. I tried to order them chronologically, but we'll see. This first one, uh, this is from uh, Douglas Moo. Um, it says, if Chapter 2, verse 6 to 15 is the heart of Colossians. This verse, talking about uh, verse 6, along with verses 9 and 10, is the heart of chapter 2, verse 6 to 15. It serves as the hinge between the first major section of the letter, chapter 1, verse 3 to 2, 5, and the second, chapter 2, verse 6 to 4, 6. So what he's saying is that you can break Colossians in two parts, basically, and that verse 6 is the hinge that it draws it the first side together to the second side. He says the first clause succinctly restates the key theological argument of the letter to this point. Jesus Christ is Lord, like Mr. A. was saying, how Christ has triumphed over all these things, like Paul is saying, and we have entered into his lordship. The second clause, verse 6, then summarizes the specific commands and warnings that follow. We could call those the implications or the uh, indicatives that flow out of the imperative. We are to continue to live in Him, to work out just what it means both in our thinking and our acting to live under the lordship of Christ. Right. So as Paul often does, uh, like we get to uh, in Um, Chapter 3, it begins to get very tangible about how to live in light of these things, and that's something that he's picking up on, that the indicatives, uh, the commands, are grounded. Excuse me, the indicatives, the things that are true, the declarations, are the foundation out of which the commands, the imperatives, come. This next quote is from uh, Matthew Henry, and as always, he is very pastoral and talks about Uh, what Mr. Tom was drawing our attention to, the warning here. He says, The way in which Satan spoils souls is by beguiling them. He deceives them, and by this means slays them. He is, after all, the old serpent who beguiled Eve through his subtlety. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 3. He could not ruin us if he did not cheat us. And he could not cheat us, but by our own fault, And folly. Implication being there, if you believe anything other than the teaching about the lordship of Christ and his supremacy, you are believing a lie that has been fed to you not by your conscience but by the devil. All right, right, third quote. (coughs) This is from Matthew Poole. Having cautioned them against sophistical seducers, and commended them for that order and sound faith he understood to be amongst them. Remember we looked at that uh, last time in verse 5. Beholding your order and the steadfastness of your faith, et etc. Cetera, et cetera. He here infers an exhortation to continuance in both, especially in the latter, with respect to the person of Christ, according as he had before described him. So he's already described Christ similarly in chapter 1. As you have received the doctrine of Christ. Excuse me, I'll just get there. For he does not say, as you have received the doctrine of Christ. This is a wonderful point. I'm glad we're looking at this. He doesn't say, as you've received the doctrine of Christ or doctrine concerning Christ, but as you have received Christ himself, as John 1, 11 and 12, 1 John 5, 11 and 12 say, in whom is all treasured up for salvation. So... This is part of the danger of false teaching being laid out here. That you don't go to Christ through the false teaching. You abandon Christ himself. And that was the warning that the Colossians needed to hear. That you were not going to continue walking in him if you continued to allow your faith to be spoiled by Satan and these lies. The fullness is found in Christ. And then uh, here this next quote... This is on should be page 36. Uh, well, 35 and 36, sorry. This is part of an introduction to this section that we looked at in that Reformation commentary I've referenced a few times. It says, "In Jesus Christ, we are claimed as His own through the spiritual circumcision that is baptism." Comments on baptism, occasioned by Colossians 2:11 to 12 show a surprisingly wide range of views of the nature and efficacy of baptism. He's talking about the Reformers here, that as they looked at Colossians 2, 11, and 12, there was a wide range of views of the nature and efficacy of baptism. For all, though, this sacrament resonates with the themes of repentance, faith, burial with Christ, and a new life. Through Christ's victory over sin and death we may now receive justification by faith. Christ took captivity itself captive, he plundered the demons, and he conquered Satan, and he reigned triumphant through the sacrifice of his own blood. So, a summary of that, that section. And if you all have anything, please stop me. We're just going to read through these and talk about them as we go. Go ahead.
2: We don't receive a doctrine of Christ; we receive Christ Himself. I think that's major facts, as the kids would say. Yeah, <laughs> it's major big, what? Big fact. Big. It's a big reality that in Reformed theology, I think sometimes we have the tendency to think that we have to get the doctrine ground, or we come to Christ through doctrine, we we've, yeah. we've missed. The, it's like we dehumanize Christ; we make Him something like a concept and not a person. I heard someone that
4: used the analogy. Which came first, doctrine or Christ? Right. And you, if you want not careful, yeah. that's the trap you fall into.
2: Yeah, we make it all about doctrine yeah. oh, bro, we could, people can make all say all the right statements, make all the right claims, articulate all the facts that they you know as you come to understand it. It's actually easier to under to learn doctrine. It's much different to be in a real relationship with the person.
1: I would just add that if you look, me, I, I, I think I would just add. Not, not the either or, but the both. Yeah. Because if you look at Paul's words in, in the passage that Trent started with, in Him and in It, okay, we're in Him as a person, but we're in It as the work and doctrine and substance of it. So, so you can't have Him without having the It. You can't have the It without, you know. They're, they're, right. right yeah. To me, there's both. And or sorry to be such. No, no, no. I no. think right. I think
2: we tend to put the it before the him.
1: So well, I, I agree with you. I can see your point. Yeah. We miss the him and get the it, but let's don't look at the him and miss the it. Right. The other screen.
4: Mm-hmm. I was reading something that going through the Trinity and understanding that relationship, and it was.
0: Have you understood it yet?
4: No. <laughs> 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 I, I no means no. Will I ever? I get possession, <laughs> and I get into mission, and I. that but my point out of that was was going back to what you guys are talking about what ed is saying well as we continue to look at what the church fathers have begun and developed thank goodness that the holy spirit kept true to his promise Mm. to begin to have individuals that could begin to articulate that Mm. so that at least we can begin our mind to grasp around that in the process so that's a great thing but failure and falling of man always is to do what? Christian or non-Christian? Sin is to fall into elevating himself. Yeah. And that's what we ask But Ultimately, that's what you're talking mm-hmm. about. That we just yeah. have to be careful, and that's always that reminder to Christ. First.
2: When you read the Puritans, when you read the Puritans, they are writing about person. And they are very doctrinal writing about that person. They're very orderly and, and all the things that you know, we get accused of being frozen and chosen about. But at the same time they are writing about a person. They're writing about Christ who they have a personal relationship with and they love and they adore. And sometimes I think we maybe because we go too fast, we don't slow down and think about the fact that Jesus loves me. He mm. loves me. And he died for me. And I love him. You know, it's, it's it's that simple. And to Tom's point, I think that's the trap that as mature Christians, Christianity gets more and more simple, I guess, as we grow. Because we start realizing that we're not so much tempted with, like what Paul tells Timothy, beware of vain disputes, right? Beware of these these young men coming in, these young ones coming in and making all this big deal to do of nothing, right? Because it's Christ and His person and and that's what we have and mm-hmm. that's what we'll see and I don't know, it's just beautiful that that's the faith, right? Mm-hmm. And that's what gives us life and vitality is, is this person.
0: Yep. Just to say something about what Mr. Lee said, um, and I think it, it emphasizes Paul's point too That's why I bring it up but the first word that the Westminster Divines chose to use when they began to lay out the attributes of God is infinite right he is inexhaustible right they go on to say uh, something to that effect uh, incomprehensible as well, but the infiniteness of God that he cannot be. Uh, exhausted, as it were. We are finite. He is infinite. And we are ultimately, I mean, this shows the gratitude that we should have uh, for God, towards God in Christ and by the Spirit because that infinite God is brought to us by faith in salvation, right? It's not doctrine so that you can encapsulate this infinite God and then receive him. It's the person, the triune God by Jesus Christ whom we are led to that then out of him and in his infiniteness flows the doctrine that is so necessary. But those two things are, I mean, I agree with, I think y'all are all saying the same thing, that this idea about the fullness of Christ and the importance of teaching him rightly is, is being emphasized by Paul. Uh, our next quote here. Um, This one here is a gut punch. I'm just going to warn you. Uh, This is Calvin. Uh, He says, further, when he says that the fullness of the Godhead dwells in Christ, he means simply that God is wholly found in him. Listen to this. So that he who is not contented with Christ alone desires something better and more excellent than God. The sum is this that God has manifested himself to us fully and perfectly in Christ. Then he goes on to talk about uh, that word bodily uh, at the end of um, verse 9. I'll leave that to you for later because we're running out of time, but I commend you to read the rest of that quote later and give you some insight into some different ways it's been taken. Next quote, uh, verse, not verse, uh, but this is from, what did I do? Calvin, again, he says, Those, therefore, who do not rest satisfied in Christ alone do injury to God in two ways. For besides detracting from the glory of God by desiring something above his perfection, they are also ungrateful, inasmuch as they seek elsewhere what they already have in Christ. Sounds very Augustinian. Um, there's a quote there from Calvin on uh, circumcision. I'll leave that one with you as well because it's so long. And then the one on uh, baptism um, is given there from Matthew Henry at the bottom of that page. Let's go to the last page, and this will be, we'll look at this last quote. And this is from Matthew Poole, and then we'll be done. Because he he's talking about principalities and powers, because uh, I wanted to, because that's such a focus in Colossians, I wanted to make sure we read this one. This is on verse 15. He says, one conceits, meaning like someone else who wrote about this passage, that by principalities and powers are meant the ceremonies of the law because of the divine authority they originally had, and that Christ unclothed or unveiled them and showed them to be misty figures that were accomplished in his own person. That's true doctrine, but the wrong passage to to argue it is what he's saying. But I see no reason thus to allegorize meaning to make the words mean something uh, beyond what they obviously mean. There's a place for that. God does that in his word. Um, but he says he see no, sees no reason to thus allegorize, for it is easy to discern the word is borrowed from conquering warriors, having put to flight and disarmed their enemies, as the word may well signify disarming in opposition to arming. Romans thirteen twelve, and in the passage about the armor of God in Ephesians 6. And signifies here that Christ disarmed and despoiled the devil and his angels with all the powers of darkness. We have seen that by principalities and powers are meant angels. Chapter 1, verse 16. Also with Romans eight thirty seven and Ephesians 1, 21. And here he means evil ones. In regard of that power, they exercise in this world under its present state of subjection to sin and vanity. You got several verses referenced there, whom Christ came to destroy and effectually did on his cross defeat, more verses there, delivering his subjects from the power of darkness, chapter 1, verse 13, according to the first promise, Genesis 3, 15. He made a show of them openly, yea, and Christ did, as an absolute conqueror, riding, as it were, in his triumphal chariot, publicly showed that he had vanquished Satan and all the powers of darkness in the view of heaven and earth. Amen.
1: Yeah. I, I just would I, I'm still struggling with this angel part of this, okay? Because when I see when I see all of this put into that, Satan and all power of darkness. Hey, there's still sin in me, okay? Mm-hmm. There's still there's still the reality. There's something
0: more than something in an angel. I just, I just object to the. Well, that's just one part of the argument. I mean, yeah, verse fifteen. That that's just one point that he's making. He deals with sin in us in verse thirteen. And I'm talking about but Paul. Thing, I see I see when
1: I see the word and powers. I, I, I just resist. Re, Resists the implication, as he's arguing here, uh-huh. that it that is translated into angels. Okay, Yes, in some sense it is, but I, I just have trouble following that yeah. in a complete sense.
0: Yeah. When I say that he argues that sin is also dealt with, I'm saying Paul. Oh, right. Because in verses 13, 14, 12... 11. I have no problem with
1: Paul saying.
0: I know, but I'm just saying that Paul's point is only about this one verse, right? So it's not overthrowing the arguments that precede it. Uh, it's just an addition to it, that not only has Christ conquered everything in you, but Christ has also conquered everything out there, the seen and the unseen, right? So, yeah, I get you. Anything else? One, One,
3: two one first quote that you uh, let's see, who's that from John Calvin Uh, those therefore who do not rest satisfied with Christ alone do injury to God in two ways that's our from a practical standpoint today Mm -hmm. just think think about let's give some examples of those who do not rest satisfied with Christ alone um, is, I mean, is that basically, uh, yeah, let, let's take some examples. What, what are you want me
0: to give you the chief example? Yeah. Yourself.
3: <laughs>
0: <laughs> me. In sin. That is what we are doing. Choosing to be satisfied in something else other than the fullness of God in Christ. That's the chief point. Now, it is more manifested in those who more blatantly reject the gospel, sure. People who are Christians only on Sundays. People who are raised in the faith and don't come to church anymore, that kind of thing. But we don't have to extrapolate it that much. I mean, it's a good question to think about who fully manifests this. But the point that Paul is driving at, he's addressing the church. If you turn away from Christ... You have rejected the fullness of God. Right. Well, I mean, I'm thinking
3: who do not rest in Christ alone. So it's it's other stuff, other than Christ. It's uh,
2: yeah. I mean, Calvin here is probably, if I had imagined, looking at where that came from, he's probably going to refer somewhere to Roman Calvin. Catholics. Yeah, he yeah. references Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But I mean, today we have health, wealth, prosperity, Jehovah's Witnesses. I mean, you get yeah, those kind of things. Yeah, that's what I'm yeah. wondering.
4: Traditions. Um, yeah. uh, uh, but even beyond oh, that, stuff, even, even in the simplest thing, when we try to wrestle something to ourselves, putting our faith in us, right. instead of simply going to our knees and talking to the Lord and asking Him, how often I fail that every single day and yet I know better. Mm-hmm. You know, I have to
0: keep you reminded there's, because in awakening them to the reality of this morning, beware. He has to show them what they already have. Right? He's not telling, though it does by implication address the world what they reject in Christ. But the scriptures are first to the church and those who are in Christ, as Paul says. And these warnings are Yes, for people in health, wealth, prosperity. Yes, for people who are led astray by Roman Catholicism and things like that. But first, stop, is our hearts. Thank you. That
4: leads me back to that that phrase that we've been given, that in my age, it takes me more and more back to that. To work out your own salvation. Mm And I misunderstood that for so many years, but now I find myself continuing to go back and try to ask that the Holy Spirit peel back some things for me to try to understand who this Christ is that I am trusting in. What, you know, how, the depth of God's plan, the perfection of it, the timing of it, the victory of it, all those things I talk about, you know, I still am trying to understand and grasp the fullness of Not that, not that I'm going to ever have an answer for that, because I know we don't until we open our eyes and see Him in His fullness at that point. But I, I find more of a responsibility, and certainly being retired, uh, Lord knows, other than taking care of doodles, I've got time to, to do the studying and do this that I didn't ever have before. But that's the part that I see mm-hmm. and, I, and try to understand. Now, can I get in trouble as a result of that? Certainly, I could if I go look at if I'm looking at the wrong things to study. And that's, I think that's what he would have in front of all of us as he reveals himself to us. I guess there's, you, I guess what I'm saying is, Wendy, do you, you don't ever stop, right? We don't ever stop growing in Christ. Mm-hmm. So, the, the, this lesson does the same thing in pointing us into those things to to continue to challenge us, doesn't? And our grasp and our understanding.
0: So. Yeah, there's a. Um, and I, I'm not accusing you of this, Mr. Tom. Just it's something that we all deal with as we read the words sit under its preaching and whatnot, to think primarily of others rather than ourselves when we hear the Word taught. Like that dangerous attitude, I wish so-and-so could hear this sermon. Right? Have you heard it yet? Right? Are you really taking it to heart? Right? Because, again, this is addressed to people who were baptized into Christ, those whom Paul said were showing a great order and fullness of their faith. But he says, even you, beware, lest you be spoiled by philosophy, vain deceit, and these teachings of the traditions of men. Because he's not saying the world's going to be led away. He's saying you could be, and to take it to heart. So let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you for the warnings. We thank you for... The comforts of your word there is even uh, great comfort in the warnings it shows how loving a father you are just as we warn our children about the danger that they may face in various circumstances in their lives so you too warn us as a good and gracious father we thank you that in the salvation that is ours uh, through faith that we have the fullness of God we can't even begin to scratch the surface of that. And we rightly say that you are infinite. We thank you that you, O Infinite One, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have made this known to us. You have spoken uh, in your word and preserved it by your spirit through the ages. And we ask that just as you've preserved your word, you would preserve us, your people, to grow us up into this faith so that we can be rooted and built up in Christ, established in the faith, Just as we've been taught. That our lives would abound with thanksgiving. We commend it to you and ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.